We've been considering for a couple weeks now the subject of the mediator of the covenant of grace, the new covenant. We've seen thus far in our study the logic that is behind the Reformed Confession, starting with our need to know God, and so God in His grace has given us Scripture that we would know Him. We have learned about God Himself, about His decree of all things that come to pass for His glory, and how He executes those decrees in creation and providence. We've seen the fallen state of humanity, that we were born under a covenant, put into a covenant by God, but we broke that covenant, that covenant of works. And therefore, as Isaiah 26, 5, I believe, says, the whole world lies under the curse because they have broken the everlasting covenant. And so we need a new covenant. It's the only possibility that we would be made right with God is if He condescended and made a new covenant, a, an agreement, a sworn promise based on other terms than our own works because we can't fulfill them. And more than that, we need a mediator of that covenant. We need somebody to stand in between the place of sinful man and God and bring these two parties together that are not able to come together on their own terms. What? And that's just a question to ask. Why can't we be reconciled to God without a mediator? That's right. That's right. The, the very nature of God demands justice. He is just in His own person. He cannot sweep sin under the rug. He can't pretend like it does not happen. And so God is against man, but man is against God. He won't come to the Father. He won't. Even on the best of terms, even, as we all know, the free offer of grace given to us without a new heart, we will not go. So we need a mediator of the covenant. And over the last several weeks, we've looked at how Christ was appointed mediator in the covenant of grace. We've looked at His nature as God and man, 100% God and man. And last week, does anybody recall what we went through? Brief overview. We talked about primarily the Holy Spirit filling the Son of God. That He was truly man in every way, and as our mediator, He was dependent as man on the Holy Spirit to do the works of God. Okay? All the works that he did are denominated. They are attributed to the Holy Spirit working and not the second person of the Trinity working through the body of the Son of God. Okay? But today, we look at his work more fully in the broad categories of his humiliation and his exaltation. Okay? That is, when we consider... What Jesus Christ has done for us, if we're going to sum it up in two broad categories, Christ humbled Himself. He was humiliated, but He was also exalted, raised from the dead and seated at the right hand of God. And this is what paragraph 4 is teaching. It reads this, The office, that is the mediatorial office, 
the Lord Jesus Christ did most willingly undertake. That which, which that, rather, he might discharge, he was made under the law and did perfectly fulfill it and underwent the punishment due to us which we should have borne and suffered, being made sin and a curse for us. Enduring most grievous sorrows in his soul and most painful sufferings in his body, was crucified and died and remained in the state of the dead, yet saw no corruption. On the third day he arose from the dead with the same body in which he suffered, with which he also ascended into heaven. And there sits at the right hand of his Father, making intercession, and shall return to judge men and angels at the end of the world. So, we see here these broad categories, basically that splits our paragraph into two sections. The humiliation of Jesus Christ, His descent to earth, His further descent to the cross, and His even further descent into the grave. And then being raised up, in almost the same pattern, raised up, taught His disciples for 40 days on the earth, and then was raised up to sit next to His Father in glory. Okay? So, we have this movement that we are discussing. And first we see Christ's humiliation. And the first thing we have to notice is that this office that Jesus Christ undertook, He most willingly undertook it. I think I've used this story before and I couldn't find it, who the guy was. But I remember when I was studying... Um, in my bachelor, for my bachelor's degree, I ran across a story in one of our textbooks of a man in Texas. It was a famous pastor, and the congregation was without an elder. And one Sunday morning, the whole congregation stood up. They had recognized this man's gifts as he taught Sunday school. He was an unwilling elder. He didn't want the authority or the responsibility of the office. But the congregation stood up. And they took time to convince him that he should undertake this office and more or less forced him into the office of elder. Now, it was a fruitful ministry. God used it. But it would be difficult to say that this man willingly undertook that office. Okay? But Jesus, he most willingly undertook his office. And it couldn't be opposite than that. Because if we consider God in his nature... We've already learned that God is most free. That is, that God does whatever He pleases. He's not forced into anything. Jesus Christ, then, was not coerced by the authority or the power of the Father to come to earth. Rather, Jesus Himself, in concert with the Father, willingly undertook the office that we are talking about. Now... Where do we get the idea in Scripture that he willingly did this? Philippians chapter 2. Yeah. Uh, especially in verse 8, which I have here. You can turn there if you'd like. We've got a lot of Scripture to read through today. Philippians 2.8 says, And being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So we see there that when Jesus Christ saw or experienced that he was in the world, that he humbled himself even further. But the humiliation of Jesus Christ and the willingness of him took place even prior to that. In Philippians 2, notice in verse 5, 
have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not equate, did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but notice, but emptied himself. Now, the key word that shows Christ's willingness is that little word that we saw, that, um, that word himself, right? That he himself did these, he emptied himself. It wasn't God the Father who forced him to be emptied. Christ, knowing the glory he had in heaven, unwilling to grab a hold of that and refuse to leave because his church, his bride was dying, he willingly let go of it. Willingly emptied himself to come and be born in the nature of man. Um, where else do we see Christ's willing execution of this office? Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. It's uh, Hebrews 12. Hebrews 12, 2, perhaps. So, that's a wonderful reference, brother. Um, Hebrews 12, 2. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. Somebody that's forced into an office, especially one that entails suffering and death, typically doesn't do it for the joy that was set before him. A couple of other scriptures that I'm just going to read quickly for time's sake. Psalm 47, that is Psalm 40, verse 7, which Hebrews quotes in Hebrews chapter 10, a messianic psalm, says, Then I said, Behold, I come. Oh, I hear pages turning. Behold, I come. In the scroll of the book, it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is written in my heart. I come to do your will. Your law is written in my heart. And maybe lastly, we see specifically the crucifixion, the most difficult and the most humbling and humiliating experience for the Son of God. The crucifixion. He tells us in John 10, 18, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down myself. I have the power to lay it down and I have the power to take it again. This command I have received from my Father. Jesus Christ, yes, most willingly undertook this office. Mm. Yeah, he gave himself up for her. Yeah. Yes. And it. Yeah, I won't get into that. That's important language. Gave himself up for her. This is the the same language that we're going to see in our morning service delivered over. Paradidomai. Okay? That Christ was delivered over, but he delivered himself over. Okay? So, we see that Christ willingly, did most willingly undertake. Most willingly undertook this office. And so... As he most willingly undertook this office, we have to consider his humiliation and the descent of it first, that he was made under the law. Now that phrase is important, because in most of our English translations, especially of Galatians 4.4 and Philippians 2 and Romans 1, we have the language in our text that say he was born of a woman, that he was born under the law. But the actual Greek phrase there is that he was made. He was made of a woman. Made under the law. 
Now, born fits into that. It's not a totally inappropriate translation. But what we should see here is that the body of Christ was actually a created body. It was a created body born under the law and born of a woman. Now, when we say that Christ was born under the law, what do we mean? That's absolutely part of it. That everything that the law says was applicable to Jesus Christ. Brother. Yeah. Yeah, and that is the the primary significance that we see. Of course Jesus was uh, obligated to keep His Father's law, but when we read through the texts that say that we are under the law or we are no longer under the law, okay, It's not communicating to us that we have no obligation to keep God's law. It's telling us that we're not under it as a curse and a condemnation. Now, this becomes somewhat clear if you'll turn to Galatians 4.4. I remember the first time this was pointed out to me, and like happens all the time, it's just like the simplest things in our Bibles we just don't read for what they actually say. Notice, in verse 4 of chapter 4, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, notice verse 5, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. We're, We're so used, I think because, maybe, of dispensationalism in our culture, to think that being born under the law means born under the Mosaic dispensation, right? Born under all of those laws and rituals that the Mosaic dispensation had that we, we consider under the law in those terms. But I want us to notice here that who is redeemed? It's those who are born under the law. Now I'd ask you, Gentiles sitting here in this room, is that you? Say, yes, it is. It is. We're born under the law. We are born under a curse. We're born with the law of God and the guilt of breaking the law of God over our heads. But Jesus Christ came born under, as Brother Caleb said, Adam's curse, born under the covenant of works that Adam broke so that he might attain eternal life for us. He was born under the law He was made under the same law that every human being that's ever been born except for Christ has broken. He's born under that law, made under it. Now, this law, as we've already said, was a curse. And so Galatians 3.13 tells us that Christ came to this world and He redeemed us, notice, From not the obedience of the law, He redeemed us from the curse of the law. Having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Jesus Christ came willingly, notice that, to be born under a covenant of works. Willingly born into a covenant to keep all that we have broken. Now, We've already talked about this a little bit, but this points to the 
the passive and the active obedience of Jesus. That He came and He obeyed perfectly everything that we are called to obey. There was never a moment in the life of our Savior where He did not love the Lord His God with all of His heart, all of His soul, all of His mind, and all of His strength. And there was never one single moment that He did not love His neighbor as Himself. We could even think about it in terms of the golden rule, right? That we ought to do to others what we would have them do to us. Jesus perfectly did that all the days of his life. Now, we also consider his passive obedience. So, his active obedience is doing the things that God called him to do. And those are staying away from sins, but also doing acts of righteousness. But the passive obedience of Christ, what do we mean by the word passive here? It doesn't mean that he had nothing to do with it. Okay? It doesn't mean he had nothing to do with it. He's not saying that he just let the the waves take him where they were going to go. But as Brother Joey, passivity is to be a, a patient. Okay? That Christ subjected himself to what creation and what the Father's wrath would do to him. He willingly put himself in the place of sinners so that the wrath of God would be satisfied for us. Do you see that there? This idea of Christ becoming one who's acted upon, a patient. That he he enduring the most grievous sorrows in his soul and most painful sufferings in his body. Where do we see that Christ endured painful sufferings, let's say, first in his body? This is probably the easy one you can answer. On the cross, yeah. Yeah, we we know the terrible scourging that took place on the pavement in Golgotha. We know that Christ's flesh was ripped from him. And in a prophetic manner... Even Isaiah 52 tells us that his form was so changed that it didn't bear a human resemblance any longer. The most terrible sufferings in the human body that were possible at that time, Jesus Christ underwent. But what about most grievous sorrows of his soul? Oh, well that's certainly part of it, isn't it? As he goes to Jerusalem, he... He is affected. He's affected by what he sees. What about in the Garden of Gethsemane? Luke twenty two forty four says this, And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. But most particularly on the cross, we see... About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, brothers and sisters, in your Christian experience, I would wager to guess that there's been moments where you have felt as if God was not close to you and perhaps in your mind, He's forsaken you. Jesus, at this time, experienced this in a way that we will never experience it. That Jesus, as He took our sins upon Himself and owned our sins as His own, God the Father, as it were, 
turned his back on his son and poured out his wrath upon him. As we see in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, don't we? That he became sin for us who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And so we see that he suffered in our place. And more than that, when Jesus Christ's soul left his body, his body continued to be humiliated. He was taken down from a cross, and what happened next? He's buried, right? He was buried. This, is, this shows the finality and the truthfulness of his death. There are some liberal scholars that in the past have advocated an idea that Jesus Christ on the cross merely passed out, and people in the ancient world were so stupid they thought he was dead, and he just got up and walked away at some point. That's not the case. He was buried. He was buried. The finality of death came upon the Son of God. The author of life was truly buried in a grave for three days and three nights. For three days and three nights, much as Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. And so, as we consider our mediator, part of his his duty that he finished was his total humiliation for us. For us. He came from the highest realms of glory, the creator of the world, and he came down to the lowest point that man can come to. And I would even say, even though this isn't our text and our topic, when we read in like the Apostles' Creed that he descended into hell, we are not to think that he went to the damned and suffered those three days. Rather, on the cross, he really and truly suffered Conscious torment that we are due to suffer. The hell that we will experience, that everybody deserves to experience for their sin, is what Jesus Christ experienced on the cross. It was no less hell for him than it will be for anybody. He descended that low. But Christ was also exalted. Finishing the work that he had to do, we read... On the third day, he rose from the dead in the same body which he suffered, with which he also ascended into heaven. So, sometimes the scripture talks about Christ's ascension as the resurrection and ascension put together, okay? Um, But Christ's resurrection from the dead is key for our understanding of the gospel. Now, I think it's interesting that this formulation that Paul has of Christ's humiliation and exaltation is not just in Philippians, but in 1 Corinthians 15, that when when Paul wants to summarize the gospel in, I don't know the word count, like 40 words, a tweet, right? I don't know how many words are in tweet. I should not talk about that. Um... He says this in 1 Corinthians 15.3, For I delivered to you that which I also received. So, that language. Paul received the form of the gospel, a form of sound words, and he delivers that form of sound words to the congregation, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture, that He was buried, and that He rose again on the third day according to the Scriptures. This is the gospel in a highly um, encapsulated form. 
highly encapsulated form, that Christ rose from the dead, but we also see that he rose from the dead in the same body which he was crucified in. Same body which he was crucified in. So it's, it's not as if Christ's soul went to inhabit a newer and better body that God had created for him apart from that. But just as we are truly body and soul, that you are your soul, but you are also your body, same thing's true with the human nature of Jesus Christ. How do we know that it was his same body that he was crucified in? Yes, yes. And don't we see this most clearly with Thomas? So, Jesus rises from the dead on Sunday, and then eight days later, and according to a Jewish counting of that, the next Sunday, he appears to the disciples again. And then, this is recorded in verse 25, the other disciples therefore said to him, we have seen the Lord. This is Thomas. So he said to them, unless I see his hands, the print of the nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And after eight days, his disciples were again inside. And Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, Peace to you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach your finger here and look at my hands. Reach your hand here and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. Now, to tie this together, it's not just some random theological point that we're trying to make. But that Jesus Christ in His body really descended that far and God exalted even that body of Jesus Christ out of the grave. He began that process of ascension. Um, Now, when we think of Christ, after He's resurrected from the dead, He spends 40 days on the earth, doesn't He? Um, As Acts chapter 1 says, teaching about the kingdom of God. And then he ascends into heaven. He ascends into heaven. Um, his ascension also, likewise, taking place on a Sunday. But when we look in Acts 1.9, we see Christ's ascension into heaven, I think in the clearest text we have in Scripture. Now when he had things while they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight, and while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood, be, stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, who is taken up from you into heaven, will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. So Christ, in his exaltation, now sits in heaven. And the question that we have, again, that I want us to consider is why does that matter for the church of God? Did Jesus Christ ascend it into heaven? Multiple right answers. He's here as our mediator now. That Jesus Christ is our high priest. As we've said before, a priest has two jobs. It's oblation, that's sacrifice, and intercession. Okay, Christ performed his work of oblation. He sacrificed his own body through the eternal spirit, as Hebrews 9.14 tells us. But he is now in heaven praying, interceding for us. And just for two quick texts, we see 
Romans 8.34 and Hebrews 7.24. I'm going to read them. I hope I'm not getting us off track by reading this much. Romans 8.34 says, Who is he who condemns? Notice, who, who can condemn us? Can the devil, can our own conscience? He says, no, for it is Christ who died. And furthermore, is also risen. So notice how Paul sees not just the death of Christ, but even his resurrection as part of the reason why we are not condemned. Who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. And the question is, what is Christ praying for in heaven? He's praying for the good of his church, right? But I would say, most probably, we see Christ in heaven praying. So the priests in the Old Covenant, they would sacrifice the animal, bring the blood into the temple, and then they would engage in prayers for the same people that those animals were sacrificed for, right? Praying that the spiritual blessings that that blood represented would come upon the people. And the same thing is true of our Savior. His sacrifice on the cross, He is now in heaven praying that all the benefits of the cross would forever come to His people. That we would be called from our sins, justified, sanctified, and finally glorified. Christ prays for these things for us in heaven. And therefore it should give us great hope that He's interceded for us. He's ascended for us. He is in heaven now at the right hand of God. And again, an illustration I've used many, many times, I think uh, Robert Murray McShane used, if I knew that in that mom room right now, while I was preaching, Jesus Christ himself and his human body was praying for me, I would have all the confidence in the world. But it doesn't matter if he's in the next room or not. He is in heaven praying for us. This is a very comforting fact. How else does the, inner, the ascension of Christ comfort us? Amen, brother. Yes, that's right. We as Christians, again, we're in union with Jesus Christ. We partake in His death. That the death He died, we died to sin. And His ascension and resurrection is ours. Christ is the first fruits of the resurrection, as 1 Corinthians 15 tells us. He's the first fruit as the promise that if he went into heaven, so will you go into heaven. You will ascend just like your Savior did. Hebrews 7.24, about the intercession of Jesus Christ. Notice, but he, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. This is part of the good news, brothers and sisters. It does not end at the cross. It continues on in the ascension of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. But Christ will also, as we've said, return. As Brother Ryan has told us. He will return and bring all of us to Himself. And the final element of Christ's exaltation is on the final day. Where His act of intercession will be over for His people. That aspect of His mediatorial office will be over and then He will be judge of the world. He will sit and judge all things and all people for what they have done. And 
So we ought to see that. That Christ humbled Himself so much that His own creatures condemned Him by a human court to die. But this same man, God-man, has been raised to the highest point in heaven where He will judge angels and men, heaven and earth, on that final day. He went to the lowest point that He could possibly go, and He has been raised to be the King and Lord of all the universe as God-man. Do we have any questions? Thoughts? Mm. Crucified with this degree. That's right. Yeah, Paul saying the crucified, the Lord of glory. That's right. Both those truths coming together. He's under the curse. He suffered and died, but at the same time, the ascended Lord. Oh yeah, yeah. It's worshipful, isn't it? Uh, and as Acts twenty says, that that God shed His own blood. It, it's proper in some degree to use that that language. He was really God. He really is the Lord of glory. He really shed His own blood. What other thoughts do we have? Questions? Yes. You were talking about sufferings. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Amen. 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 Yeah. And you see the same thing there, don't we? He, God, was manifested in the flesh and He was taken up into glory. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, no, that's included. In, uh, I, I think there's a little bit of disagreement on when the the passion starts, so to speak, the passivity, the passive obedience. But most, I think, would take the Garden of Gethsemane onward the, of the, the passive obedience of, of Jesus. Mm, amen. Yes. Yeah, yeah. We could talk all day about all of that, right? Uh, the Holy Spirit especially. You know, sometimes in the Scripture He's called, receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, right? That Christ ascended into heaven in the language of Acts 2 is He received the Holy Spirit. He had it already, but in some way, some eschatological way, He received the Holy Spirit and then poured it out upon His church. Um, yes, anything else? Brother. Oh, yes. Yes, yeah. And again, we could talk about that for a long period of time. And that is the, the theme of the book of Acts. When you read about the resurrection of Christ, the overarching emphasis is that Jesus was justified. So he was falsely condemned by a human court, but he was justified. God raised him from the dead to show that. He was not a sinner that deserved death, but he took it for us. Yeah. Mm. Yes, yeah, amen. Yeah. There's a reference there to Romans 1 4. 
Amen. No, those are great, great texts for that. Amen. Anything else today? So, all of this, we talked about how it applies in its various parts. How does the whole of Christ's humiliation and exaltation apply to us? How does that, how does that help us in our Christian life? How should that inform us? Brother. Yeah, that's right. Amen. And we will follow him, right? So... Because we are united to Christ, his path to glory was one of humiliation and then exaltation. And that's the path of every Christian. It's not victory after victory in this world until we reach the final victory, which is glory. It is hatred of the world, persecution, struggle with sin, death to self, taking up our cross, and waiting for the day, as Christ did, when the Father will raise us to glory with himself. Right? This is the cruciform pattern of the Christian life. Oh, yeah. Amen. Just as the, the first text you gave us, Hebrews 12. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. Brothers and sisters, you have joy set before you. Promise set before you. So endure the cross. You can despise the shame. But endure the cross with joy because it's going to be far better than we ever could think or imagine. And we know that because it's been done for our our forerunner, first and foremost. And he is our anchor in heaven. Okay, I'm going to pray for us. Lord, we come before you in the, the strong name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the only name given under heaven by which men must be saved. Um, God, I pray that today you would fill us with hope and belief that Jesus is in heaven. He has undergone everything for us most willingly. And therefore, we are confident that God, we, we are saved through him. God, strengthen our faith. God, not in our ability, not in our works, not, don't strengthen our faith in our faith. Strengthen our faith in Jesus Christ that he's done everything for us and that we might have joy in this life and and bear fruit of obedience and holiness even as he did. God, be with us in Jesus' name. Amen.